Are you ready to take your leadership and your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate, evolve, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world. And you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of Metcalf & Associates. I work with leaders and their organizations to identify the trends that will most likely disrupt their businesses and develop business strategies and business and leadership practices to leverage those trends to create sustainable business and strategic advantage. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. I'm also an adjunct faculty member in universities in the U.S. and Germany. Welcome to Cynthia Cherry, who is the president and CEO of the International Leadership Association. We are broadcasting live from Brussels at the annual leadership conference. Thank you, Maureen, for being here with us here in Brussels. I'm so excited about the series of keynote speakers that we are able to present and that will give a timeless message around our topic and theme of leadership in turbulent times. And I'm very pleased with our conference chair, Jort Volkers from Deloitte University, the dean of Deloitte University and his team who helped us along with the ILA staff to present this global conference in Brussels, Belgium in 2017. joining Maureen Metcalf and Catherine Goldman Schuyler. Catherine's a leadership coach and OD consultant. She supports leaders in creating healthy companies grounded in their own awareness and cultivation of inner peace and global impact. She uses their own development to enable them to shift their organizational culture to be more nourishing to everyone involved. Clients have included national corporations and nonprofit organizations with a focus on the executive team development, culture change, and organizational learning. So today, Catherine will share selected experiences that helped them successfully lead impactful change. Quoting from Nelson Mandela, I'm not here to tell you how to solve your problems. What I can do is tell you our story. Catherine will let us see her work from her own perspective telling her story so that you can take home what resonates with you on your own leadership journey. The intent of this session is to bring ways to you to craft a role in leading toward a healthy and alive world. So what do today's times ask for from leaders? What a great question. Of course they ask for all of the traditional skills that leaders need listening, communicating, knowing their own business. But I think that what's particularly important are two things, being able to focus on the larger system in which their organization or their company is functioning Mm -hmm. and working. 
So understanding and the context. Understanding, but it's more than the context. It's really understanding it as an interconnected system. Ah, got it, okay. So in the sense of Peter Senge's work with systems, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. example, really seeing that what you do in developing a product has to relate to how you market it in all different parts of the world and the need mm-hmm. for it and how it will then affect people. So really looking at all of the systems and the larger holes, how does it affect the planet as well? Mm. Because we see that human activity, even though it's well-intentioned in many ways, has been harming the planet. And And we're seeing the impacts of that now. We're seeing it in many, many ways. And so I've been quite interested in the work that's happening in the International Leadership Association in sustainability leadership as well, and looking at how the work, which I can talk about in a bit, that I've done with awareness development seems to make leaders naturally more aware of the natural environment in which they live, which surprised me. It wasn't what I was looking for. But anyway, helping them focus on these larger holes and how the success of their organization really is interdependent with the success of other organizations. And I think also a sense of Margaret Wheatley said it in my recent book, Creative Social Change, but a sense of, of humor, a way of finding the, the goodness mm-hmm. in the people and in the situation that you're in rather than the darkness. Because at all times right now, it seems like it's partially dark and partially light, right? Whether we're looking mm-hmm. at the US politics or what's happening in other parts of the world, there's always both going on. And if we focus on the darkness, we get depressed, we depress other people. It's hard to have the energy to do anything. And I think there's more and more research that's showing us too that there is a tremendous amount that's going on to make people healthier. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense of, of well-being. There's lots that's working in the world yet most of us, much of the time, get really wrapped up in what's not. You know, it's hard when I look at the news not to get overwhelmed, and yet having a good gratitude practice, close friends, a sense of purpose, there are things, and I'm sure you'll talk about some of them, that when we have regular practices, we're able to use that as an antidote, and I look at the news less, because a lot of that I can't do anything about. Regular practices, I want to pick up on that, is so important. I have always felt that myself just because it seemed to make a difference to me if I was regularly, whether it's both exercising and meditating, adding and eating right, that how I Mm -hmm. feel is different. And then I notice that in my clients as well. Mm -hmm. But also there's a very interesting book which I wish I could remember the name of, by Sandra Waddock, that showed that of all of the people that started the social responsibility movement and started organizations, Mm -hmm. she interviewed 24 different people. They all had some kind of personal practice. Now, they didn't all meditate. Some of them took walks in the woods. Mm -hmm. Some of them went running. Some painted. Some wrote poetry. But everyone had a practice that connected them with themselves so they were, in a sense, daily reminding themselves of their wholeness and of their connection with, as I called it, the goodness in the world. Sort of Mm -hmm. the goodness in oneself and Mm -hmm. in other people. 
Because it's easy to forget that. It is when we get overwhelmed by the, the stuff. Right, right, for all of us. There was some similar research, I think by Josephson Joyner, who looked at people who were developmentally highly mature, so, so mature leaders. And all of them, in the research group that they looked at, all of them also had a personal practice. And again, I don't think it was limited to meditation, but it was some sort of inward reflection practice. What's interesting to me in what you just said, you were referring to the developmental maturity. And I got interested, you you know I wrote this book recently about creating a healthy organization. And I got interested in the notion of organizational health, oh, maybe 15 years ago. Okay. And realized that at the beginning of the creation of the profession of organization development, they focused and spoke explicitly about organizational health. And in the intervening years, people started speaking just about effectiveness, which has a much colder feeling than Mm -hmm. organizational health. And what Chris Argerus, who first wrote Mm -hmm. about it, believe it or not, in the 1950s in the Harvard Business Review? I remember reading his books early on. I did too. I was reading his books when I was a graduate student, and then years later I went to a conference and heard he was speaking, and I was amazed. I thought, how could somebody I studied still be around and speaking? But of course he was, Mm -hmm. and I got to meet him, and wonderful man. What he said then was that what was a healthy organization was one that enabled mature human functioning. So back Mm. in his earlier work in the 1950s, when he was kind of developing the field of organizational Mm. behavior in a way, what he was saying is that what a lot of people regarded as a healthy organization, which just had to do with profitability, in fact, reinforced immaturity in people. And he had a sentence that was something roughly like, people would say, well, I'm going to have to say, And I think he said in the Harvard Business Review, to hell with my personality, I'm going to just do what I have to to make money. Wow. And we don't think now that that kind of thinking was happening in the 1950s, but there it was in the Harvard Business Review. So I thought that was kind of fun. Our (laughs) field has now taken 65 years to get back to there. To back to what he was talking about. That is interesting. So to look at what I mean by a healthy organization, Mm -hmm. because people often ask me that, what I'd love to do is just describe to you how we chose to describe that in the book. Yes, Because I think it has a very human feel to it. There's a lot of research on it, but this is the more human version. And what we said was a healthy world is a place that nourishes humans and all other living beings. I love that you're talking about all beings. We only function on a planet that is interconnected if we attend to the other parts of the planet. And we often forget that. We often forget that. And actually, I was reminded of that by a Buddhist teacher of mine. We were Mm -hmm. walking in the woods, and I had been more or less taught by most of my professors that it was really a stretch to think about all human beings, you know, that I kind of thought too big. And so I was saying something to him about all human beings, and he, he, st- he put his hand on my arm and stopped me and looked me in the eyes. And he was a wonderful man who actually it was as if I'd found Yoda in real life. <laughs> really, that was the feeling. And he stopped and looked in my eyes and said, Catherine, 
not human beings, all beings. So that sentiment. that got me to remember all beings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which again probably circled you back to where you were at an earlier point. Very possibly, very possibly. So what we said beyond that was that a healthy world is a home in the full meaning of the word, a place that we think of with love which gave us birth and where those we love reside. And I really like thinking of the earth in that way. To me, thinking of nourishment and Mm -hmm. love has become finally something that we are allowed to talk about in relation to organizations and business. Mm -hmm. I have a doctoral student who's doing her dissertation research on love, and it was not my idea, it was hers. She's a Mm -hmm. high-level executive in HR, and she's worked mostly in Silicon Valley in technology, and she decided that she wanted to study non-romantic love Mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley firms. That would be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) And she is. She's finished her interviews, and uh, I don't know the results yet, but that's what she's found. That there is some. Oh, yes, yes, but it wasn't what she expected. She herself views love as a choice that we make, Hmm, that we choose to love people in order to be able to create the organizational environment that we want to create, that we have to kind of choose love. What I think she found was more that people were just sort of falling in love, not romantically, but in love with the people they were working with as they worked so hard to get these products out. It makes sense to me, having come out of hardcore consulting, that you're working so closely and to really be effective, and again, it's a non-romantic love, but an intense connection and simpatico to get stuff done. Yes. You have to. And it has been so fun for me to be able to mentor young women in mm-hmm. studying things like that that are important to them. Mm-hmm. So these are women that are already out there working in the world, whether in HR or in production or in organization development and there's so many people have been told you've probably heard as many stories as I have of people having been told 20 years ago don't study that whatever that that is that they were interested in for some it was meditation for others it might have been organizational health don't study that it's a career killer and so I'm so happy to be the person who helps people study what they love We didn't even get to talk about it. I was told you can go do whatever you want. Just when you come to work, you put the wall down. Well, uh, a young man who was a student of mine was a passionate long-distance runner, not marathons, ultra-running. Do you know ultra-running? Yeah, I have a colleague who does the 100-mile runs. Yes, that's what he does. So he was going to do his dissertation on something about payroll and finance because that was what work he did and all the light would go out of his eyes and mm-hmm. then when he was talking to us in the research seminar about his running he mm-hmm. would start sparkling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so we all told him study motivation in ultra running and that's what he did and he finished his dissertation faster than almost anyone I know because the same discipline he applied to ultra running he applied to finishing a dissertation Anyone who can run 100 miles in a day <laughs> has and a keep level running of commitment. All night. Yes. And over mountains. Uh-huh. I don't really understand that. 
But do you know what he found? He found not that these were people who liked to be alone, but that they loved the fact of running and that they really had a sense of community and often loved that they were doing the running to help various causes that the mm. runs were supporting. And mm -hmm. in a sense, they were really very giving. And there was this sense of generosity that he found in the interviews that he was surprised by. Fascinating. So he interviewed a series of ultra runners. Then. Yes, yes. And that's what his dissertation was about, to find out about what... You know, there's that movie, The Loneliness of the Long-Distance Runner, and I think we all sort of expected to find that. Instead, he found mm -hmm. the compassion and caring of the long-distance runner. It was very interesting to me. I, it almost brought tears to my eyes when I was reading his dissertation to see that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Again, it feels like it's coming back to what sparks us to be alive. You, you pointed to the life in his eyes, and how do we help people connect the work they do to the passion that does bring life and joy. Exactly. Because they bring it to the organization. So that what I think is really important for leaders too is that how they are mm -hmm. is a huge part of their leadership and their effect in their, with their people, both close to them and at a distance. So I think that it's really important for you and me, and for lead mm -hmm. all other leaders, yeah. to be learning how to nourish ourselves so that our being is transformational, so that our being is a source of nourishment. And we can't nourish other people if we feel kind of undernourished as we mm -hmm. go through life. Depleted. Yeah, and depleted and stressed. When I was working in one big company, I won't mention the name because of what I'm about to say, what I decided fitted best in that culture, if people asked, how are you, was to say busy. Oh, it yeah. wasn't to say okay, and it certainly wasn't to answer the question. But if I said busy, they'd look at me knowingly and move on, and everybody was happy. I was taught early on that you, everywhere you walked, you walked with purpose, and you had a pad, a notepad. If I was walking to the restroom, I would pick up my notepad and march purposefully to the restroom, looking busy. And so it reinforced that sense of you always looked like you were a person with a purpose and going somewhere, but not the kind of way we're speaking of purpose now, no. meaning really interdirected. No, it was but marching to a busy to a task. Yes, it was task, very task, task focused. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, so I'm glad I don't have to use a notepad and march to the restroom these days. Oh gosh, right. So what I've been doing recently, in addition to the consulting and the, the mentoring of, mm -hmm. of these wonderful students, is action research so on what I call waking up at work. Waking up at work. And I sometimes use the term mindfulness because it's become something that people think they know what it means, but they mean so many different things by it. So I chose the term waking up moments because I know many people who have meditation or mindfulness mm -hmm. practices who somehow that doesn't carry over into their behavior in the workplace. It's almost like when they're meditating, whether it's for 10 minutes or a half hour, they can feel very peaceful. And then when they get to work, everything becomes distracting again. Yeah. Now, one ancient definition of meditation mm -hmm. is the state of non-distraction. And that, again, we're supposed to be meditating in every moment, 
especially the loving kindness meditation. I can be loving and kind until I get in my car. <laughs> Here's someone in front of me that's driving slow. Or until someone yells at you, you idiot, which somehow has been happening to me driving around San Francisco recently where oh, I really? live. Yeah, I don't know. But I've, I've heard various versions of that, even ruder. And so mm. it's interesting to try to, to learn to let that go. But in this work, and what I like about the action research, let me tell you the origin of it first. So um, we're here talking at the International Leadership mm-hmm. Organization. I've been involved with other organizations. And one does a workshop and then goes mm-hmm. home to one's work. Uh-huh. I wanted to do something that would create a sense of community out beyond that and encourage people to practice. Okay. So I created a workshop that would invite people to look for these moments of being present or awake in their work and that we would come back a year later and meet again and have another symposium and discuss what the effect of that was. So we did and we created Mm -hmm. a project where we were doing research on our own exploration, on our own practice and co-creating that. And we had... Finally, I mean, about 30 people started, but about 15 actually did it. Okay. And we either took notes on these moments or Mm -hmm. talked into our phone, just describing the moments. And some people went into this with an idea that a moment of waking up must be a moment when you felt blissful. But that wasn't what I meant. I meant helping everyone discover when do you feel present? Often, Mm -hmm. it's when you're looking in someone else's eyes and are talking with them. Mm -hmm. Or when suddenly something that's going on shifts and you were expecting to be arriving somewhere on time and you discover you're much later. Do you just get irritated or do you shift and figure out how do I deal with this moment right now? I think Peter Senge, one of the things I teach in a class, used to call it moments of awareness. And in this moment, what do I choose to happen? If I can have the presence of mind to ask myself that question rather than go into a reaction where I call someone an idiot. Exactly. Exactly. So we encourage people to look for moments like that, whether you call it moments of awareness, mindful moments, moments of waking up, to look for them ideally several times a day, Mm-hmm. Several, several times a week for three or four weeks and take notes okay. on it. Okay. And then as a group, several of us looked at all of this. We used that as data mm-hmm. and wrote a paper about it that we published in a good journal, but it's a very mm-hmm. readable paper that when we first presented a draft at a conference, mm-hmm. this man who I didn't know, who was a scholar, who'd published a whole lot, looked at me. He was supposed to give feedback. He looked at me across the table, my co-author, and I thought, oh, no, what's coming now? He held up the paper, held it to his heart, Mm -hmm. and said, I love this paper. I couldn't believe it. Oh, how wonderful. Here. So um, that led to finally being able to get it past all of the peer review and publishing, and we've Mm -hmm. published that. And if you like, I'd be happy to tell you more about the second phase when we took this into an organization and also what the results were. I would love that. Let's go to break and we will be right back and talk about the results of that paper on the second phase. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Metcalf & Associates is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and business. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, Metcalf & Associates has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the perpetual capacity to identify and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. Metcalf & Associates offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with Metcalf & Associates. Visit Metcalf-Associates.com today. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at metcalf-associates.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. You're joining... Maureen Metcalf and Catherine Goldman Schuyler, and we were talking before the break about the second set of research. And one thing I'm delighted about, and you mentioned this, is that you're now able to do research and support others in their dissertations on topics that, when we started our careers, were undiscussable and career limiting. And, right. And now, this is part of your research and part of your nurturing others as they do their research. And also consulting. One of the things I'm excited about is that I picked up on a chance comment from I mentioned that I had gotten Mm -hmm. to know Chris Orgeris. He said to me that he never would do consulting unless people agreed to let him do research on it as well. Oh, wow. Okay. And mostly what I have seen over the years is a huge gap Mm -hmm. between the people who do research and the people Mm -hmm. who do consulting. And there's very little documentation of what occurs that works really well in consulting. And people Mm -hmm. are so busy with their consulting, back to our theme of busyness, that it doesn't get mined for the richness Mm -hmm. that's probably going on in in many organizations. Mm -hmm. So... Along the way, I decided that that's what intrigued me about the notion of action research, which is focusing on learning from what you're doing and in a disciplined, structured way. Mm-hmm. And there's no particular rules about what kind. You know, some people are measuring things and counting things. Other people are looking at people's stories. Some people are looking at behaviors. 
but it can be many different kinds of research, but the point is learning from what you're doing. I do a lot of that. I'm probably one of the odd ones that I've ended up publishing, and a lot of it is in the form of case studies and then developing processes with clients. Wonderful. Wonderful. So let me backtrack a bit out of where we got to with Mm -hmm. that because Mm -hmm. I want to tell you what led to being able to take this research into an organization. So when I first Mm -hmm. imagined the research, by the way, I pictured that first we would do it and it was individuals on five Mm -hmm. continents who were reflecting on themselves. And by the Mm -hmm. way, what they saw was that it energized their work, that they felt more connected with students, Mm -hmm. that colleagues who they'd found a pain to interact with suddenly Mm -hmm. were easier to deal with and the colleagues weren't changing. They were changing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That when they were really tired, they could feel refreshed just by taking Mm -hmm. a moment to look out the window at a tree and Mm -hmm. go back to work and then they had the energy to keep going. So that was the first phase. I wanted to take this into intact work groups. I wanted to see both what would happen in an organization, if people were doing this on their own, how would it affect that organization? And we haven't quite gotten to my, what may be the third phase, is what happens if people actually practice together and discuss their practice together, which we had didn't get there in this one, but I'll tell you where we got to. So I had met a wonderful woman who I can mention because we, mm-hmm. she's allowed me to and we published about this. Her name's Michelle Olson-Taylor. I met her through the first women's conference of the International Leadership Association. She came up to me to talk about my book, Inner Peace, Global Impact, that you alluded to, Mm -hmm. which is about Tibetan Buddhism leadership and work. Mm -hmm. And Michelle at that time was working in Utah in Utah Valley University which is a very rapidly growing university. It's over the last... Many universities in the last five, ten years have been struggling. They've been growing. Are they a small private, like like a liberal arts college? No, no, no. They started a long time ago as a technical school and then became a community college and then became a university. Mm, They now have 35,000 students, so small. Yeah, not small. Okay, I'm just thinking of the liberal arts colleges that are really struggling. Yes, so they're not liberal arts, but they're everything and 35,000 students now, and her organization was, because she's moved on to another role, Mm -hmm. about 1,000 people full and part-time. Okay. And she had just moved into the role of vice president of student affairs, Mm -hmm. dream job, so happy about it, but it was in many ways turning out to be quite difficult. And I don't know if you found that. I had a dream job one time that turned out also to be quite difficult. I think many people's idea of what will be their dream job, Mm -hmm. we don't see the hidden politics in it for the most part. Often it's the interpersonal gnarliness of it that doesn't show itself. Yeah, I had a very challenging boss. And and lots of great support, but it was the daily interaction with someone who was difficult. Yeah, so this wasn't her her boss who, who was quite supportive, mm-hmm. but in any case it was very challenging. Mm-hmm. And she read this book on Tibetan Buddhism. Now, mm-hmm. Utah Valley University is in a Mormon setting. Mm-hmm. So we were not suggesting she practice Buddhism 
or anything in particular, but it was the kind of thinking that you and I have been mm-hmm. discussing mm-hmm. that seemed to really resonate with her. Mm-hmm. And she found it very, very helpful and started looking for moments like this, found them, mm-hmm. and realized that she felt happier going to work again, mm-hmm. finally. Mm-hmm. She was thinking that maybe she'd have to give up her job because she just it wasn't... She's a very naturally happy woman, okay. and she wasn't happy. Okay. So one day she was leading her director meeting, which has about mm-hmm. 50 people, looked out at the room and mm-hmm. said, I saw in their faces how I had been feeling, and I felt we needed to change that. Catherine, will you come help me change that? How wonderful. What a great in- invite. Yes. So we found a way to create a different version of the same process because when I described to Michelle what we were doing with just taking some notes it seemed very minimal mm-hmm. instead she said Catherine you don't understand it has to be simpler they're too busy and then I would mm-hmm. say something she'd say Catherine no simpler so I could he- almost hear this you know the mantra. term mantra <laughs> yeah it was like no Catherine simpler less so finally by the time we were doing it we actually didn't ask anyone to do anything in particular mm. except for look for the moments. Now, by the way, if anyone wants to try this, and you can do it on your own, but they're welcome to get in touch with me. I'm happy to okay. to help people create research or projects of their own. Because there is something wonderful about being able to reflect later and look back on the moments, mm-hmm. which isn't in traditional meditation. But we didn't do it in that process. Mm-hmm. They just did the moments, and then she would invite people from her staff to oh. come to the director's meeting and talk about what they'd been doing with what we called mindful moments. We had to call this not only bringing mindful moments to work, but joy. And she insisted mm. that I add joy, and I remember thinking, okay, Michelle, I'm not sure I can g- deliver joy to your organization. <laughs> you know, I grew up in New York, and in New York we don't necessarily think we can deliver joy. <laughs> it's not a very New York thing. But this project was about mindfulness and joy. Okay. And by the close of our work there, because mm-hmm. there's a temporary pause. Michelle has moved on to be president of another institution mm-hmm. now. I heard the most amazing stories from people who were speaking of, you know, I was really reluctant to try this, or I thought this was really silly. Mm-hmm. But finally it seemed like, oh, why not? Yeah. You know? Doesn't cost anything. Yeah. It doesn't take much time. And we looked very carefully to find books that were not preaching or teaching anything, mm-hmm. but were simply talking from in a very secular perspective mm-hmm. about being present, about being mindful, and how it had affected people's lives. And we used several different books that people could read or not read, okay. and people could participate or not participate. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of results that we saw, what people said, because we decided that neither of us would go interview the people, Mm -hmm. but another doctoral student would do that as part of her Mm -hmm. dissertation. So they were talking to somebody who didn't have power over them and Mm -hmm. wasn't the consultant. Okay. And they were saying similar things about, I suddenly noticed the connection with the mountains around me. Mm. I realized I hadn't even been seeing them as I drove home from work. Mm-hmm. Suddenly I saw what a beautiful place I lived in. Mm. 
people saw that they felt more connected with their purpose in doing this work in the first place, which as you know, one of the main things in human services kind of work is that people get burned out, whether it's nurses, teachers, student affairs, all of those, yeah. that it's really hard to be the carer professionally. And so what they found, and we didn't remember, we didn't tell them that there was no should. There was no, no training. There was no telling them this is what will happen. So this is Just simply the their reporting. Simply look for moments like that and mm -hmm. see what happens. So they felt more connected with their colleagues. They felt more able to listen to the painful stories that they often heard mm -hmm. as part of their jobs from yeah. students and to deal with the difficult situations that can happen. They do happen. That do happen in student yeah. affairs, yes. And in every job. In every job, yeah. And then we were able to publish that, and it was so fun publishing, it's a book chapter, uh -huh. with a portion by Michelle as the leader, a portion that I wrote as the consultant designing the project, uh -huh. and a portion by Orit as the student, writing from the perspective of the researcher. And so we have these three voices describing mm -hmm. the experience as well as including comments from many of the people in her organization. So it was really heartwarming. So how does that translate? So I'm doing mindful moments. It sounds like that then translates to I become more present and happier in my work. I'm assuming that equals more engaged and better impact on... What would be the difference in your mind? This is really interesting when you say mm -hmm. that more engaged because another student who wrote her dissertation on the first part that I was mm -hmm. describing mm -hmm. was originally going to study engagement at work. Mm -hmm. And she told me I was getting... She basically said I was getting less and less engaged with the engagement literature. <laughs> so when I just skimmed it again, what I saw was that originally, as a field and as a concept, mm -hmm. the people who were writing about it, it had a very human quality. Like I was saying, we describe mm -hmm. what it is to be create a healthy mm -hmm. world. And that the humanness was somehow seeping out of some of the engagement oh, literature. Yeah. yeah, I know what you're talking about. And it was starting to have a very dry quality mm -hmm. to it. And I think that's what was turning this woman off, who is Chilean and who's back in Chile now as a professor teaching in a school of business. So I don't know what the, how you distinguish between being happy and connected with purpose and engaged, because to me that would be the same. Actually, what I use in my mind is the work of Jim Ritchie Dunham that, that really looks at vibrant organizations. I say the word engaged because people know what that means. So I think of vibrancy, and his framework looks at, when I come here to this place, how do I feel about myself? So I walk in and I feel better, I feel happy to be here, I feel seen, or I feel like I need to duck. When I walk down the hall, I don't make eye contact, I look down, because if someone catches my eye, they're going to do something that's unpleasant. So, <laughs> You're reminding right? me of one of my executive clients because the people in his organization used to refer to him as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. They never knew whether he'd walk in and be really warm and friendly or just almost vicious. And so they literally would duck into the bathroom and hide. I've had those bosses that when we thought he was coming, you'd shut your door. 
So I feel good about myself, I feel good about us. And so it would connect with Gallup's, I have a best friend at work, but he's very particular about, I see the best in other people, I look for opportunities to help them succeed, so I can feel seen and appreciated and uplifted. And what it really comes to, and then the organization has a mission that we support, and if those are in place, I can be creative, I can put forth ideas, and Mm. I can make the effort to do things I haven't done before and innovate. But if I have to dock, I'm not going to put forward anything. I'm going to follow the rules and do what I'm told and zero more. Mm -hmm. Because it's risky to do any more. So in that space, I would put forward new ideas. So so when I say not engaged, I'm talking about the, I'm going to duck. And, okay. And so, so what you're reminding me of is that some people are naturally that way, right? And I actually have it. seen that they are that way. Mm-hmm. When I first started working, it was at a community college in Texas. Mm-hmm. And the first assistant that I had... Mm-hmm was one of the people you're describing. She had no particular training in mm-hmm. anything related mm-hmm. to interaction. She was a warm and friendly person who mm-hmm. came to work, connected with other people, liked doing the work that she was doing, liked supporting me, and liked being at the school, and that just came naturally to her. And so some people are that way, but most of us, sadly, I think either are not, or it's just difficult to maintain that in the workplace at, or to create an atmosphere like that in the workplace. So his work, and I really, I don't want to get uh, sure. s- sidetracked, but he would say if you want people to be engaged, stop disengaging them. So Absolutely. It, so his hypothesis is most people are innately that way, and when the environment promotes it, it shows up. So what I was hearing as you were talking is the mindful moments are one path in to create that sense of I'm connecting with myself in that part of joy and I'm connecting with you, my colleague, who I appreciate and admire. But if we're marching down the road trying to get the stuff done so diligently without pulling our heads up, we don't connect with that I'm working with a human being that I really like. because we're not making space for it. So I love what you're saying. And it reminds me, too, of what Carl Rogers said about empowerment and disempowerment. Some decades back, I had the great blessing of getting to be at a workshop with him. And people were talking a lot about empowering people. Mm-hmm. And what he said was, you can't empower people. All you can do is stop disempowering them. So it's a similar thing. And that often what goes on in the workplace is we disempower people, which different word, but it's a similar notion. What intrigues me about this approach that I'm still playing with and evolving Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in an experimental way and seeing is that there is no dogma in it that it can go across cultures, it can fit with people of any particular spiritual belief Mm -hmm. or none. I think that's really important because even meditation is so charged for some people. It is. It's just not accessible for some populations. Well, also I think people have developed, frankly, misguided ideas from my Mm -hmm. perspective 
and from the perspectives that I've studied in of what meditation is. You know, a lot of people, I think, and I think my mom used to think this, she would say, she would call things navel-gazing. You know, you Uh, shouldn't be gazing at your navel. And meditation has nothing to do with shutting the world out or with shutting your mind down. People Uh think that it has to do with you have to learn to drive out thoughts, but it's not that. (laughs) But they do. They really believe Uh that. Uh It really has to do with learning to be able to be fully present to our minds as they are and Uh not jumping about and distracted and not just in the mind, but also not in the mind in the sense of thinking about, Uh but mind in the larger sense that includes heart that includes caring, that includes compassion. I think that's a really important point, and you said it eloquently, so I'm not sure why I'm repeating it, but that meditation isn't just a brain thing. It is mind as being and brain as a bigger entity that I'm engaging with. Yes, and engaging does really fit there because what I feel like I see in the research and a lot of the training on mindfulness, as Uh it's described in Western business contexts increasingly, emphasizes how it can help people do their tasks better Mm. and relieve stress. Now, it can, in fact, do those things, but that's such a small and, I almost want to say, wrong-spirited part of of what mindfulness really, Uh, really is about. Uh Because mindfulness in its deeper meaning and deeper Mm -hmm. roots is about what you're speaking of, Maureen. It's that sense of being able to connect in a very aware, present, non-distracted way Mm -hmm. with life, with human beings, with what one is doing, and being able to be present. And that means present to the bad stuff, the stuff we call bad, right? That there are parts in our lives that are incredibly joyful and I'm filled with deep gratitude, and there's no question. And then there's other stuff. I I left my backpack on a train the other day. I was looking at my map, love technology, and it it started when I got on the train, I had eight stops to go, and then it was nine stops and 10 stops, and and then I was 12 stops away, so I jumped off the the trolley. Well, I jumped off the trolley with my rollerboard, but without my backpack. So I'm at a conference, to record interviews. No backpack, no microphone. Oh my gosh. In a country where I don't speak the language. So panic and incredibly grateful that these beautiful people, someone didn't report it as a bomb evidently and throw it out the window <laughs> or something. I mean, all the scenarios that went through my head that, that this sense of deep gratitude, but then stuff goes wrong. Stuff and does go wrong. That's why It really is a source of intellectual delight, I Uh almost want to say, and also something to study further, that such a simple process as paying attention, Uh just waking up one's mind Uh to notice, to ask one's mind to notice, Uh can lead to feeling more connected with one's purpose at work, with the people one works Uh with, And with nature and the planet, it's like, my gosh, how nice to find something simple that does that. Now, that doesn't mean, by the way, because I do want to make this clear, I really do value 
deeper practices mm-hmm. of meditation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there is very much a place in life for deep training in that. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that everyone needs that. I think that people who are going to teach other people meditation should mm-hmm. have gone through deep practices and deep training. But I think it's really important to see this perhaps as a continuum. That's a great way to look at it is I don't have to do deep. Right. But uh, to, have, to have it affect one mm-hmm. if one wishes to be a military leader, an executive, mm-hmm. a teacher, a consultant, mm-hmm. all of them require the capacity to be present, to make decisions clearly, and to mm-hmm. be with other people. Almost anyone. I don't know many people right now whose lives wouldn't be better with that capacity. Even if it is so that they can be more present with their kids. But it doesn't it's have not to be even a work an thing. even. That's not an even. That's huge. Yeah. My work has not been with children, but I feel more and more that if only children got the kind of nourishing mm-hmm. that allows them to feel whole and loved, they live differently. Well, what I want to say for your work, I hear when I'm working with clients often, when I meet their spouses, they're so different now. I can't imagine that people who are going through this practice aren't also significantly different with their spouses and kids. They would have to be more present. It's not just a work thing. Of course, of course. So that's huge, the ripple of your work through the lives of the people who are who are touched and then who touch them. Uh Yes, absolutely. What's been fun in this too is seeing that there are executives who are already both involved with deep practice of their own, Uh the deeper practices, and and one of them I think you interviewed recently, Subhanu Saxena, who's now with the the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh Uh And to see that the understanding of the mind and heart and how it relates to effectiveness in addressing the world's problems, health issues, just having our humanly created world be something that is, as we said in the book, something that's a source of health and nourishment for people in the planet instead of a kind of Après moi le déluge, like Marie Antoinette said, you know, and I think many people have that feeling now of a kind of hopelessness. And I think that it's really important at this point in history that not to allow ourselves to get caught up in a drift towards hopelessness and to thinking that the problems are bigger than we can deal with. I think that's a brilliant way to to bring us to an end. I did just interview someone else who's a molecular biologist and also talking about these personal practices and that they actually change our DNA, that we are physiologically different and it is obvious in every interaction because we're less sick in some cases or more resilient. And when we're resilient, we're able to access that part of us that is hopeful rather than the part that is continually overwhelmed. And as leaders, if we are hopeful, it's contagious. Yes. As as is the overwhelm. Yes. Yes. 
So how would people get in touch with you and your resources? So my website is coherentchange.com. Okay. And people can reach me directly through there. They can read a lot of the things I've written. I have Uh some webinars that are posted there. So that's really a very easy way to find me. And if they're interested in bringing you in to consult or to do research, that's how they would contact you? That's how they would reach me. And I have my books are listed there, three of them in all relatively recent. The first was uh, Inner Peace, Global Impact, which is easily available as a Kindle book. Uh-huh. And then the two that were done for the ILA's Building Leadership Bridges series. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. One is Leading with Spirit, Presence, and Authenticity. And the other is Creative Social Change, Leadership for a Healthy World. So all of them are easily available through Amazon, too. Thank you so much. This has just been delightful to hear more about you and your work and how it's impacting people. Thank you for joining us live in Brussels at the International Leadership Association Conference. In these turbulent times, investing time and energy to refresh and evolve your leadership skills becomes a critical success driver. I challenge each of us to consider the impact effective leadership makes on our lives and on the lives of the organizations we lead and the people that those organizations impact. Imagine what each of us can do as we work together to solve these big problems that impact us, together we can create a world that is more peaceful, more just, and creates more opportunities for everyone to thrive. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovative Leaders Driving Thriving Organizations with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then. Drive and thrive and have a great week.